You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Galatians chapter 5. I want you to go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 15. If you're a guest today, we're going through the book of Galatians. According to Tom, we'll never finish. Um, But we are going to get through it. Uh, Galatians is broken down into six chapters. It's got about three parts with two chapters each. We've already covered the first two chapters, Paul's personal biography. Uh, Then the next two chapters, we covered Paul's doctrinal basis for his argument for grace over the law. And then finally, last week, we picked up uh, Paul's practical bearings in chapters five and six. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Paul is attacking the biblical topics that the devil was attacking in the lives of those Galatians. And all the information that Paul had given in chapters 1 through 4 now find their application in chapters 5 through 6. It's like the elderly woman who was a longtime member of her community and her local church. And after the sermon one Sunday, she came up to the pastor and she said, Oh, pastor, oh, pastor, that was the most beautiful, incredible sermon I've ever heard. That was just wonderful. Every single thing you said applies to someone that I know. (laughs) Let's see who Galatians 5 (laughs) applies to today. All right, Galatians 5, 1 through 15, these are the words of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by each other. I want to ask Chad Wolf to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Chad. Thanks, bud. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, I want to thank you for bringing all of us here today. I want to thank you for Pastor Went. I want to pray and ask that you would speak through him today and that we would all have an ear to listen. And above all else, Lord, I pray that you're glorified today. I pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Chad. All right, a man uh, once came up to Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the great English preacher. 
and they were at a Christian retreat and they were sitting, you know, during a break, during between one of the sessions, they were sitting at like a refreshment table, standing there beside the table. And the man looked at uh, Charles Spurgeon and said, uh, I think I finally reached a place of spiritual perfection in my life. And Charles Spurgeon just looked at him and didn't say a single word. He just reached over and picked up a pitcher of ice water and dumped it on the man's head. And the man uttered out every expletive known to man, right, like you would expect, soaking wet, screaming at Charles Spurgeon. When the man finally stopped, he said, well, now I know exactly what level of spiritual perfection you've attained, <laughs> right? There's none righteous, no, not one. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. But friend, here's the problem. <laughs> you can't keep the law. You can't, you can't ever keep all of the law. Matter of fact, that's the issue. The law was put there to show us our need for a savior. And by the power of God's word and the Holy Spirit, we do have the power to do what is right, but never perfectly. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.12, years after his salvation, like more than a decade after he had trusted Christ. And when he trusted Christ, he probably already had the Old Testament memorized. And so 10 years later or more, when he's writing the book of Philippians, he says, uh, not that I am already perfect. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? Mature believers think honestly about their own sin and their need of a savior. That's actually mature. <laughs> Paul breaks down the book of Galatians in three sections, biography, theology, and now ethics the practical implications of where the Galatians are headed. So he gives an honest rephrasing. We started this last week, an honest rephrasing, a practical outcome of grace versus law. Galatians 5.2 says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, it ain't going in well, all right? So he gives them two threats. He tells them there's two threats to your faith turning back to the law, which we covered last week and we'll finish today, and running forward beyond grace, which we'll have to finish up next week. Seven honest statements about the Galatians turning back. And by way of review, Paul says to come face to face with grace and delay or reject it is to free fall away from Christ into the depths of hell. God doesn't look at your brother's room and say, well, at least yours looks better than his. God says, look at me. This is what I mean by clean. This is what I mean by righteous. You want the law? You best read the fine print, which says, and this is a review from last week, you'll be beasts of burden pulling empty carts. You'll be losing yardage on every play. You'll be all in on an impossible investment. You'll be set free from freedom itself. You'll be embracing insecurity in an unknown future. And number six, and this is their new part today, you'll be hindering your own victory. For people who seem to want to obey God desperately, you're actually going to be putting stumbling blocks in front of yourselves. Galatians 5, 7 says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And remember, Galatians 5 introduces the practical section. So Paul gives three applications of a hindered faith. Uh, starting in verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7. And the first is, faith requires a pace for completion. Faith requires a pace for completion. Galatians 5, verse 7 says, you were running well. Now, Paul used race metaphors all the time in his writings, and 
I believe he started using them because Galatians is one of his earliest books that he wrote, earliest letters. And he, he started using this metaphor in Galatians uh, 2 verse 2, which we've already covered. It says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Later in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Christians are to pace themselves at a speed that faith can endure. Now, that doesn't mean that that speed should be at a snail's pace, all right? Which, by the way, I know you're wondering, the fastest land snail on record was named Kali. And Kali, little Kali, uh, traveled the long distance of two feet across a piece of smooth glass in a shocking time of three minutes. That's .00758 miles per hour. And at that rate, it would take you 2,770 plus hours to get from here to the Memphis airport. Which means, and I know you're worried about this, if you have a flight leaving January 25th of next year, you're gonna need to leave right after the service in order to make it on time, all right? The point is, God is all about movement, and some of us are stagnant in our faith. And whatever the faith pace is, it's running, right? Not creeping or crawling or sitting. Actually, scientific measurements prove we're, we're moving even when we're sitting still. Continental land masses slide at a rate of up to eight inches a year. Actually, America's moving to the west, away from Europe, at a rate of three inches a year, right? Within just our own galaxy, the sun and its solar system are moving at 43,000 miles an hour right now. Yeah, so if your wife gets mad at you because you're lazy, say, babe, I'm flying right now. <laughs> the preacher said I was. All right. Uh, our Milky Way galaxy is moving at 1.3 million miles per hour. And I'm only saying all that to say that God made us to move everything. And the Christian walk should really be called the Christian run, right? Definitely wears you out like it, like it's a run. Our legs may be shot, our, our knees may be bad, but our hearts and our souls should be empowered by God for all eternity. Paul is saying the false teachers have cut into your race and they've thrown you off your pace and now you've stopped moving toward completion. As a matter of fact, you're moving towards disqualification. A recent news article from Glendale, Arizona, this was I think in 2018, uh, which is recent, the older I get, the more recent 2018 is. Uh, a, this was a well-known ultra marathon runner named, uh, from Draper, uh, Arizona, was disqualified from an Arizona race in, uh, for, after a timing official witnessed him waiting in a porta potty in order to skip laps. A race official told KSL.com, Kelly Agnew was disqualified from the Across the Years Fixed Ultra Marathon, which takes place in December at the Camelback Ranch in Glendale, Arizona. It's a fixed time ultra marathon, meaning runners have fixed times to cover as much distance as they can around roughly a, a one mile loop. The official witnessed Agnew looping back to the finish line to register laps without running the full loop, as well as spending time in the restroom near the finish line. 
when told what a, that a timing official had witnessed his activity in the race and he would be disqualified, Agnew turned in his race bib and his timing chip without an argument. And he had already run 17 laps, or we don't know how much he ran actually, but it, he had registered 17 laps. And maybe it's a really bad place and out of color to share this, but it's in the Bible, so I'm just going to read it. Galatians 5, 8 through 9 says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, which is exactly what happened to Agnew because race officials went back and examined all his previous races and discovered similar discrepancies. And so he was retroactively disqualified from all the other races. He disqualified from 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. They canceled all those wins for him. Church, I'm only sharing that to, you, to share with you that that's why doctrine is important. We need to be kind and loving to others, you know, in sharing that doctrine, especially to the lost or those who may disagree with the Bible or misinterpret the Bible. But we cannot waver on sound biblical doctrine. Or it will produce ripple effects. It will produce disqualification. Let me just ask you something. How many of you have a porta potty pace in your walk with Christ? We can laugh all we want, but grace doesn't require a slower pace than the law. Grace requires more than the law. Jesus has shed his blood unconditionally for us, undeservedly. And we receive that. And grace demands something of that. Not a porta potty pace, not sitting around registering laps. Church, I believe there are many in, in this room, I really believe it, who are running well. You had highlights in your faith. You were serving, you were ministering to others, you were, you were on, you know, you were on pace. But something got in the way. I don't know what it was. It doesn't really matter. God knows what it was, and he's the only one that needs to know. But he does know, and he doesn't want you sitting still, right? You're caught red-handed, not by me, but by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. You can't run from him. Your heart knows it. God knows it. And it may be starting to show up in un unhealthy patterns in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace. But listen, we just need to repent. We need to confess that sin and get back in the race. Get back in the race. Paul says, who hindered you? Faith requires a pace for competition. Second, faith requires the hope of completion. I said for competition, but for completion. Faith requires the hope of completion. This is one of the best verses that Paul ever writes right here. Galatians 5.10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Right? Paul's not trying to shame the Galatians, right? He's trying to spur them on to finish. Endurance is, is wonderful if it's your own, right? I know my own fight. I know my will to win. But what about someone else, right, who's fallen, they have failures in their life, and they seem beyond all hope, right? Does my faith have the endurance to believe in someone else to complete the race? Nah, they're always going to be like that. How many times have I heard born-again Christians say, ah, they're always, they're always going to be that way. That's just who he is. What are you talking about? Have you read the Bible that I have? God is about change and redemption, amen? amen. And he can redeem anything. We were once those people, those of us who are born again. Matter of fact, in, in I, was, I saw a video this week, and I'm going to show a clip of it in just a minute. 
It's, uh, it's from the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon. 1984 was the first time women ever got to compete in, in a marathon. It was their own uh, female Olympic marathon. And it was USA who won that. Joan Benowit crushed the rest of the field, go America. And she came into the stadium. They, the final lap of the race, you know, it's a 26.2 mile race or whatever. And the final lap of the marathon, of the, of the race was run inside the LA Coliseum, which could hold like 90,000 people's pack. And so she comes in, she's a minute and a half, I think, ahead of the, the, neck, the second place runner. I mean, she's just dusting them. And she comes across the line. First woman in U.S. history to win the Olympic marathon. In the world, right? And it should have been the front page news. But there was another story that was even better than hers. And it was the story of a woman named Gabriella Anderson Scheiss, known as Gabby. Gabby had won a couple of races the year before. She had won the California, the inaugural California International Marathon in 83. She was actually a ski instructor in Idaho, but she um, represented Switzerland in the 1984 Olympics in the marathon. But in that race, she was struggling. She was off her pace. She was dehydrated and she missed her last water break. There was only five water breaks at that time. You know, you grab a glass of water and down it real quick. And she was, when she came into the stadium, she was stumbling all over the place. And medical helpers tried to intervene. But if they touched her, she would be disqualified. So she shooed them away. And, uh, of course, she comes into that stadium. It's packed. And all the people are looking at her. And it was, it was amazing. And I, I want to show you this clip of this. I was very relieved and I was, you know, happy I, I got to the finish line. And then at that point, I didn't care if I would be, you know, not feeling good for a week. The main thing was I made it and I didn't think, you know, that I had anything damaged. And uh, it was painful for the first, you know, during that last lap and the first hour in the medical tent, I was in a lot of pain. And uh, But then after two hours, I, I was fine. You know what really surprised me in a very uh, nice way is all the compassion and, and uh, the reaction of of just average people that were watching the games and then also of the athletes. I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't do well and I, th I thought I didn't deserve all this attention and I really kind of felt guilty and other athletes, they made me feel good because they were so supportive and I think that was one of the big memories I have from the games. At the time after the Olympics, I would have traded anything for a 10th or 15th place and not having that, what I thought was a spectacle. But, you know, now looking back with time, I can see that uh, people kind of identify with you and because they see the struggle and they see that if you really set your mind to it, you can overcome a lot of obstacles. So that, uh, you know, and it teaches you a lesson too that besides overcoming obstacles, you have to get over some bad experiences and not dwell on it and just look forward and uh, learn something, hopefully learn something from it.
what a story. Hey, how much more so is our Savior for us? Just like those 90,000 people cheering her on from all different countries, she's their opponent and they're standing up to cheer her on because they genuinely wanted her to complete the race. Paul demonstrated a supernatural confidence that God wasn't finished with the Galatians. I have that same confidence in this church, right? And in myself or I wouldn't get up in the morning, right? I'm a sinful person just like you. But God has redeemed us and I will not give up because God did not give up. He endured to the cross. And they can still turn back. Anyone in here today can still turn back to Christ and finish the race. As Christians, we must want victory for others. Unless it's my son's soccer games. Uh, or Old Miss versus Kentucky. Let's just leave sports out of it altogether. I'm just kidding. Actually, if you saw the Thursday night uh, football game between the Miami and the Bengals, Tua, uh, the quarterback from Miami, uh, just a little mild Alabama reference there. Got to put that in every now and then. Uh, sorry. There's at least one Alabama fan in here, and Karen's not, a, she's not afraid to say it, but she did sit through old Mrs. Wynn yesterday, so I just want to say that. But anyway, um, Tua was injured really bad. I don't know if y'all saw this, and it looked like it could have been a life-ending injury. I mean, like debilitating injury. He looked paralyzed. I mean, they took him to the hospital. People were tweeting, texting all kinds of stuff out. Uh, and he and all the players. Matter of fact, I think both of the opponent and everybody were chanting his name, and the, all the players from both teams sat down because I think they genuinely wanted him to be okay. And I'm only saying all this to say we cannot give up on others. When they pass away, they're in the hands of God. Can't do anything else about it. But until then, they should be in the prayers and the crosshairs of faithful brothers and sisters like you and me who long for their completion and victory in Christ. We fail. We know what it's like to get back up again, and we should want their victory. Paul says, who hindered you? Faith requires a pace and a hope for completion. Third, faith requires a combination for completion. Galatians 5, 7, verse 7 says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Timothy George says, the truth of the gospel is not only something to be believed, but also something to be obeyed. Having forsaken the solid theological foundation Paul had laid for them, the Galatians soon found themselves awash in immorality and debauchery of all kinds. By undermining their confidence and sound doctrine, Satan seduced them into loose living. Nowhere do we see more clearly the correlation between theological integrity and spiritual vitality. That's what I mean by a combination for completion. In football, you need a good offense, you need a good defense, and you need a good special teams. In golf, you need irons, you need drivers, and you need a good short game. And in faith, you need truth and obedience. Church, there's a lot of people today that want to obey something, right? They're followers of something. They are obeying, but they're not obeying the truth. And there are a lot of believers who have the truth, but they're not obeying. John 4, 24 says it's a combination. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, worshiping's good enough, isn't it? No, no. I mean, it's good. It's obedient as long as, they are, as we're worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
There are churches across the world right now that get really loud and proud in their praise to God. They dance around and they jump around, right? And I don't care. I'm not against that. I'm not against movement. Y'all need to learn a little. At least learn the Southern Baptist sway, right? Okay. But all they're really doing, many of those churches are only jumping around in a swampy mix of good and bad doctrine. You can praise all you want, but if it's about a God that doesn't exist, it's the wrong kind of praise. There's a combination for unhindered faith, and it is obedience and truth. Any other combination is a change in your destination, right? You want honesty? All right, here's, what, here's the contract you're signing. You want to go with the law? You want to try with self-righteous perfection? Then you'll be beast of burden, pulling empty carts, losing yardage on every play, all in on an impossible investment, set free from freedom itself, embracing insecurity in an unknown future, and hindering your own victory. And finally, number seven, you'll be offending the God you serve. Galatians 5.11 says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the gospel has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In verse 10, just before this, Paul says, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. So Paul must have been false accused for something right, for believing in circumcision. And so a lot of scholars think he was preaching circumcision. They, they were accusing him of preaching circumcision, which means preaching the law, salvation by, the, by keeping the law. That's what I mean by preaching circumcision. When it was convenient for Jewish audiences, because they circumcised, right? And then when he was preaching to Gentiles, he would not preach about it, right? But Paul was never, ever making the argument about the act of circumcision itself. That wasn't his argument. That's why he asks in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 18, was anyone at the time he was called already circumcised? Let him not remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So Paul demonstrated that he was fine with Jewish uh, Christians circumcising their baby boys as long as it wasn't attached to salvation, right? As long as the ethnic ritual of circumcision, you weren't trusting in that act to save you. You know, check this box and your faith is good. Paul was on the other side of persecution prior to his own salvation, right? He was preaching circumcision, preaching the law. Right? So being for it, he wasn't persecuted, but when he preached against it as a sign of salvation, he was persecuted. Right? Paul took the hard road in the face of all those Pharisaical friends, and he suffered persecution by holding high grace alone through faith alone. Right? Now, listen, to be sure, the gospel is offensive. Matter of fact, the word offensive there can mean stumbling block or snare or trap. Right? It's a trap. And we see this idea back in Isaiah 8, verse 13, 750 years prior to this, to when Paul was writing Galatians. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Peter over in the New Testament quoted that same passage in 1 Peter 2 verse 8 when he said a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
Church, we should be loving, but the gospel truth is offensive. You know why? Because it calls everyone, everywhere, all the time, wretched sinners. That's offensive. Except Jesus Christ. He's the only one who didn't sin. He's the only way to heaven. And that's offensive, right? But if we're offended by him and the sacrifice he made, we're also offensive to him. And there are repercussions to offending Christ. The religious leaders took offense at Jesus in Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? We know this dude. This guy ain't nothing special. Is not this his mother called Mary? Verse 57, and they took offense at him. Verse 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You can't believe in what you take offense at. <laughs> There's the offense and the offended. When philosophers and wolves in sheep clothing try to sneak in and preach a cheap, watered-down version of the gospel, which unbiblically represents God in a false light, they are offending a just and holy God. That's why Paul says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And I don't mean to be graphic, but emasculate there usually means castration. And so Paul seems to be saying, hey, you want to go all in on the law? Well, why don't you just be radicals about it and cut, cut it all off? It's in the Bible. You can't take the offense out of the gospel, but you can take the offense out of your faith by trusting only in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his wonderful, forgiving, holy, welcoming, our, our only savior. Read the fine print. Actually, it's, not, it's actually not fine print. It's bold print, preserved and heralded through the ages, authoritative, written, inspired word of God, breathed out by the Lord himself. You want honesty. If self-righteousness through the law is your jam, <laughs> well, buddy, it's gonna put you in one. You'll be beast of burden, pulling empty carts, losing yardage on every play, all in on an impossible investment, set free from freedom itself, embracing insecurity in an unknown future when you could have assurance of your salvation. You'll be hindering your own victory. Porta potty pace. <laughs> and you'll be offending the God you serve. But there's still hope. Or this letter wouldn't have been written to the Galatians. There's still hope of turning back to the grace of Christ. Now, before our time of response today, we're going to uh, be taking the Lord's Supper. There's, I think, five tables, uh, Lord's Supper tables spread throughout the sanctuary, two up here, three in the, across the back. So in a moment, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. I'm going to pray. And those of you that are born again and feel comfortable and right with the Lord in taking the Lord's Supper, you're free to do that. But what you'll do is you'll get up after the prayer, you'll just go to the uh, table and take out two cups. The cups are stacked on top of each other. The bottom cup has the bread. The top cup has the wine, the juice. So you just take both cups and go back to your seat. Take, take the Lord's Supper at will. You may want to pray or explain things or pray with your kids or something or explain it to them. But you're free to take them. And then the ushers will come around right after that. Uh, as we're standing, they'll come around and pass things down to collect those because we don't have places to put them in the back of the, uh, of the chairs, all right? Let me read this passage. And what a great, um, a great, to read this after Galatians is a perfect place. 
1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That means you need to know the Lord. You need to have confessed Christ. That's why verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you've got unconfessed sin, just confess them right now to the Lord. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry for the way I spoke. I'm sorry for this thing I thought or did. Uh, please forgive me. And then take the Lord's Supper. Accept his forgiveness. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, remember those mature believers, we're wretched. We need Jesus. That's a good judge of yourself. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. That's because the blood of Jesus would already be over us. But when we are ju judged by the Lord, meaning disciplined, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Would you stand? Father God, I, I just lift up this time of remembrance of you and the death on the cross, your blood that was poured out for us. I pray and I confess to you now, Lord, if there are sins that I have I am unaware of, I don't I can have the memory to remember everything I do bad, every thought I do have that is wrong, everything I should do that's right. But if there are things you need to recall to my mind, recall them now so I can confess them and repent. I want to take this in a worthy way because it's a remembrance of your holiness coming down to earth, incarnate in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to offer eternal forgiveness forever for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And I pray now, Lord, as we not only have a time of Lord's Supper, but following that, it's, it just runs right into our time of response. So after people take the Lord's Supper, there may be people in here that want to come and join the church and be part of our church family. And there may be others that want to publicly profess Christ. They want to, they want to be baptized or they want to let uh, people know that they've confessed. They've called on the name of the Lord and been saved. So I pray that you'll bless both the bread and the wine supper as well as our time of response in Jesus name Amen. this has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton Tennessee for more information on how you can get connected with PBC please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com